Welcome to another episode of Live Sound Bootcamp, where we geek out about making things really loud. Mm. I'm Ryan John. I'm Brandon Draper. And I'm Joe Santarpia. And uh, today, we're going to be geeking out about front of house signal flow. Uh, everything from plugging the mic in and where it goes from there, to input patching, output routing, VCAs and groups, and even the process order of turning things on and off. So I guess to start out, we should we should hit the basics of what gets plugged in where and where it goes from there and where it goes from there and where it goes from there. Brendan, you want to kind of guide us through the basics there? Yeah, so like on our earlier episodes, we talked about monitor signal flow. And we started out, of course, with the mic or DI on stage. That cable is going down to a split. And that's where we break things off between monitors and front of house. So today, we're talking about front of house signal flow. We're going to be going from that split and the signal is going to be going either into a stage rack or straight to your console. So in the case of an analog console at front of house, you're going to have a bunch of wire running from your, directly from your split all the way to front of house. In digital consoles, you're going to have cable running from your split to your stage rack, and that is going to send a digital signal to your front of house console, either over BNC, fiber, or Ethernet. So you'll have a much much lighter cable run, I guess. Yeah. Much less weight. Well, yeah, I guess it, it, in, in, in that context, it's always kind of interesting, right? When With analog, you've got, I don't know, 300 feet of, of what, 60 inputs, yeah. 56 channels worth of, of cable yeah. running 300 feet. I mean, that physically takes up a lot of space. It's heavy, yeah. That trunk is a trunk I never want to roll. Literally hundreds of pounds. Yeah, yeah. And, and in many places, you can't even run along the floor. You have to run it over doorways to, to legally be within, you know, fire code and stuff like that. So there's guys on ladders hanging this, mm. like, 100 and 100 pound cable uh, going all the way down. Whereas, uh, you know, on digital consoles that have a remote stage rack, yeah, it might just be two Ethernet cables or a pair of VNCs, which is obviously a lot lighter. Yeah, right. A pretty big change in the, the world of live sound over the last, I mean, wh- when did they start doing digital snakes probably a little more than 10 years ago at this point yeah because profile was 2000 or d show was 2004 2005 so yeah that was 15 years ago at this point yeah yeah and that was a bnc you know maddie based snake uh and things they, i can't remember what the d5 ran on i think d5 was also bnc and that was a couple years prior the yamaha desks the pm1 or sorry pm1d and the pm5d were both physical inputs on them. On the so you desk, still needed yeah. to run an analog snake all the way up to front of house. Mm. So, you know, 300 feet of analog and, yeah, patch that into the back of the physical desk there, yeah. Mm. Well, either way, once you, once you get up to your desk, from there, we're obviously going through the console, and then from the console's outputs, we're going to our speaker processors or our crossovers, and from there, we're going out to this, the amps for the speakers, and then finally to the speakers themselves. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess some speakers, they're active speakers. The amps are in the speaker, right. along with uh, you know, potentially crossovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the Meyer speakers. There, there's, there's other brands, too. I know. You know, if you've got a JBL Eon. Just ribbon, yeah. <laughs> Powered QSC. Yeah, QSC, yeah, yeah. Those K-series, they're not bad. They're not bad. I, I don't mind them, you know. I've got two, two of them pointed at my head right now. <laughs> Oh. oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot you had some of those at home to mess around with. That's fun. <laughs> so the speaker processor is also something to kind of point out, right? Uh, typically, larger brands have their own speaker processor that go with their own speakers. And they have the settings for those particular models built into that processor. 
so that you can load the exact settings that match with the speakers you're using that also match with the number of speakers you're using and the way you're deploying them. But there are also speaker processors that exist that are not tied to a specific brand. Things like a like a DBX drive rack mm-hmm. or even analog speaker processors that maybe have level controls, slight bit of EQ and crossovers in them. So there's a lot of options there in terms of speaker processors. And one of the one of the big ones on tour is Lake processors. Lake processors are speaker processors, but on your average tour, guys are more likely to be using it pretty much as an EQ gain and delay rather than an actual speaker processor. I, I imagine you guys have seen it that way most of the time, right? I've, I've seen it used on just a vocal and <laughs> nothing else. Just like as a vocal EQ. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Green, green Day. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but... Uh, yeah, I think you could say that, but that actually reminds me. Um, I know a monitor guy who uses Lake on all his outputs for his mixes. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, though, it's all wedges and stuff, so... Damn. Yeah, it's kind of neat. It's a good EQ. You know, one of, one of the cool things about Lake, though, is that it, it, it... Yeah, it's a great EQ, but also it'll even allow you to integrate Smart right into it so you can see the frequency responses and transfer functions in the screen behind the EQ itself. Oh, that's pretty awesome. So it's pretty easy to go, oh, there's a peak, let me pull it down, because it's right there, overlaid over the EQ. It's cool. Oh, wow. Besides that feature, is it just they're really great-sounding EQs? Like, is there any other plus side to using them? T- to me, they're great-sounding EQs. I think you're limited to 99 bands or something per overlay. Jesus. And you could put something like 90 overlays. I actually don't know how many overlays you can put, because I've never run out. So at that point, they are asininely flexible it allows you to do mesa eqs which basically means they don't have to be symmetrical on both sides Ah. like the low frequency portion of the eq could be a really shallow slope the high frequency portion of an eq curve could be a really steep slope Hmm. Um, they're incredibly flexible very powerful very powerful tools good d to a too from what i understand right yeah 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 from what i recall i haven't i haven't tested that in a long time but yeah (laughs) i they sound good they do So now we made it to the speakers. Yeah. So what's the next kind of thing to be aware of? What's the caveat? Like, where are the caveats here? Where where are the things where we can screw this up? Yeah, let's 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 back up a bit. You know, uh, obviously a lot's going to be going on in the console um, when you come into it, whether it be from your rack or from you know some connection on on the physical desk itself. You know, something we should talk about is is digital patching, which we've probably covered before. Right. right. But uh, you know, this is. Uh, a feature of most, if not all, modern digital consoles where you can take a uh, physical input, whether it, again, be on the stage rack or on the physical console itself, and then route it to basically wherever you want channel-wise, you know? So for, so, for instance, you know, input one of your rack doesn't necessarily have to be channel one on your console. You can patch it anywhere. This information is often stored or usually it's stored in the show file itself. So it's important to be aware of and be managing. You know, if you've changed a patch um, on a previous show um, and then forget and reload that show file, you know, it might not come up the same. And so, you know, again, it's just important to be aware of what's going on. So, so I got a question for you here, though. Yeah. So how does that affect things like festivals? Well, in festivals, a lot of times what you'll have is the sound company providing will often do an advance and collect input lists for all of the bands playing that particular day on that 
for that festival. And what they'll do is they'll create a master list that kind of fits all of the band's stuff kind of in a uh, logical order um, within the patch. So for instance... Um, and and that, that we lovingly call the festival patch? That we call that we call the festival patch. And then it'll be the visiting... Oh, oh you don't call it lovingly? <laughs> you know, I, I again, I appreciate those guys. All right, there was sarcasm yeah, there. I, I appreciate those guys. They, you know, even when they mess up, it's like, you know, they're they're working hard and you know probably overworked and all that yeah but yeah so you'd have this this master list where all everything from all the bands will kind of show up so you have you'll have like a section of drums where like the the largest kit will be accounted for so if you roll up and you only have five channels of drums you'll then need to reference that physical analog patch you know and pick out which ones they're using for your for your show does that make sense did i articulate that well yeah yeah i mean see see where it gets interesting is that i I feel like festivals have kind of moved away from that these days since now there's so many digital desks yeah but you know when we were on analog that's just how it was right so they might have a patch that had 16 inputs for drums and if you only had a three-piece kit you might be using input one two for kick in and out you might be using snare which might be i don't know five six and then you might be using uh, i don't know floor tom and that might be input nine yeah. And at that point, rather than them moving all these things around, sometimes they would just say, you know, build your patch around this. Uh, and that would be the festival patch. Where, where it becomes really common is if musicians or, or artists are sharing the same microphones on the same lines, on the same riser, mm-hmm. and potentially the same drum kit itself, right? So if, if the only thing going away there is the drum kit and another drum kit's coming back, then yeah, they're not going to repatch all these things to individual inputs for your input list. Instead, the kick lines are going to go into the kick, the snare lines are going to go into the snare, and the way you may have orchestrated your input list is going to have to kind of adhere to that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Work around it. Brendan, I feel like I interrupted you there. Well, like in an analog situation where that's happening, you're just skipping over channels, correct? Exactly. Yeah. You're just not yeah, you're leaving everything patched in, but you're just avoiding using those channels that you're not supposed to be using because you're not using those mics for your your set. You're at a festival with an analog desk and you don't use kick in for your band. So you're so your band's starting on channel two with the kick out line, the festival right. kick out patch. Yeah, and you know where that gets interesting is that every once in a while that still happens. Even even if you got digital desks, right? Because there may be a scenario where there is only enough mics really to cover one large artist, at which point it doesn't make sense to pull those mics off and repatch them into different holes over and over and over again as the many artists through the day go. So in those cases, the different artists that are using different mics will only use those channels or only use those inputs rather. And one thing I find helpful is if I know that my artist is only going to use, let's say, input 1, 2, 5, 6, 9, 10, or whatnot, I will actually hide all the other inputs so I don't see them and think that something's coming from there. Yeah. Because I don't want to see meter level on all these other channels and pull up something that is not the right one. And especially in in the context of things like snare drums. Snare drums are very loud. So if you have other microphones sitting on the drum riser there that are plugged in but aren't actually being used, you're going to see a lot of signal level on it. It gets confusing. And you might see it and go, this this might be my snare. Or if something seems wrong, you might look at those instead of the right one. So typically, I actually like unplugging the mics. I'll leave the cable still attached to it or something like that, but I just want to unplug it so that no signal comes in from it. Because then at least every mic we are using comes through and everything else is dead silence. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Anyways, I feel like I totally, totally sidetracked your, your digital no, no, input no, patching. No problem, no problem. So <laughs> another, um, you know, an, 
Another way to use that feature is the the double patching, and we talked a little bit about that before. Very useful for things like monitors from front of house where you want, you know, or any scenario where you basically want to duplicate an instance of an input, you know, maybe if you want it to have two separate characters that you can kind of, uh, you know, jump back and forth between quickly without adjusting EQ. Um, That's a scenario where you double patch. It's important to consider when double patching digitally, those channels will typically share preamp gain. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's not like an analog Y split where you have two fully dedicated channels. Uh, you know, with with the digital stuff, you're you're those are going to have the same preamp. So you'll notice as you turn the knob on one on the pre on one, it's going to go up or down on the other. Mm-hmm. So I, I've got kind of a funny question here too. I feel like this is just the episode of me just asking you a bunch of questions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I typically use a kick in and a kick out, and there have been scenarios where I've showed up at a venue and they don't have a, let's say, viable kick-in microphone. I know guys that will sometimes patch the one kick mic to two channels in the similar way they would have used a kick-in and a kick-out. Is this something you do or have ever done? Yeah, yeah, you, you know, you, you know, just uh, may, maybe not that specifically, but yeah, using a double-patched input for some sort of parallel processing, yeah, that's, you know, you got to be careful with your time alignment and stuff and, uh, <laughs> and, and all that, but um, yeah, that's something I, I've done. Cool. All right. All right. So, so like, what what are the other reasons for using, you know, digital patching versus actually moving cables? Well, you know, if if an analog line goes down, for instance, you're you're at that festival, and uh, you know, you have a finite amount of analog inputs, and you know, one of them one of them goes bad. Instead of going around and like unpatching stuff at like the at the back of the console or at the stage rack or you know and uh, messing up that nice one for one scheme of matching you know snake channel to input channel kind of thing um, <laughs> right you know you could just you could just move some something and then digitally patch it to keep it on the same channel on the desk for instance your vocal it's you know you've got a lot of stuff on your vocal you got some eq some nice compressors this and that some beautiful inserts a lot of effects sends going on from that channel beautiful uh the vocal you know uh, the, all of a sudden, you know, either the uh, the split or the snake or something on one end or both ends, the, the line is bad. Okay, so now you have to move that channel. You have to move uh, where the vocal is going to be now coming up. Instead of trying to move all that stuff over to a different channel, say it went to, you know, it went from channel 16 to 56. Instead of trying to mix now with channel 56 and move all your inserts over, you just change the digital patch on the input of you know, channel 16 right. to be input 56. And then there it is. It shows up there. You dial it in. It's got all the same inserts. Good to go. Yeah, there, there's certainly something to be said for keeping as much as possible one-to-one because as you start cross-patching physical cables, you need to remember where all those have gone and it gets really complicated. Yeah. So it is it is a lot easier to just physically patch into, you know, some channel down at the end uh, and and just do a soft patch, which is, by the way, the term for, you know, making a digital input patch. It's the soft patch. Software patch, yeah. Saves so much time. Well, you know, you know, I never thought about that. That is software patch, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hardware, software. I was just going to say it saves so much time. Even if all your physical cables are labeled, you still got to, like, look through them and make sense of it when you can just switch it in the software yeah yeah and and typically it's very easy to see what the digital patch is whereas seeing the physical patch means you got to climb underneath and behind things it's it's kind of complicated so looking at a digital patch i mean just standing in your mix position you can see it so that is also a perk yeah totally so i, I guess 
I guess once it's in the channel, now we got to get it to the speakers. So that that's where the output routing comes in. And, and each desk does this a little bit differently, but they all have the same overall flow. Once you've got signal into a channel, you typically have a main output. Uh, and on your average desk, this is just a, a left-right. It's a stereo. Uh, some of them are can be switched to LCR mode, which is left-center-right, or LR and M with a mono output. But all these channels will have an ability to route to a main output. From that main output, you need to get to a physical output, which is then going to go to, as Brendan described, the speaker processor or crossover or amps or whatever it may be. But at that point, we're out of the console. So similar to how there's often a digital input patching routing, there's also, in digital desks, a digital output routing. Obviously, in the context of an analog desk, there is a physical output on the back of the desk that says left, right, mono, whatever. There's just a physical output so that the mains are always going to that physical output. On a digital desk, you have the option to make those mains go anywhere. So just like the digital input patching, you'll have an ability to select where this may go. And I believe that it's pretty typical for, for people to do left, right, sub, front fill as their outputs is, is that how you guys typically run it yeah yeah that's that's i'd say the most common brendan you in the same boat yeah also definitely i find that most most of the time i show up at a festival and you know i go uh you know what do you need from me he goes uh, left right sub fill i'm like perfect cool mine's already routed that way so what i typically do is i've got a left and right going to one two sub as a mono send on three and front fill as a output four but when you're using mains and only mains, you only have left and right to output. Right. So at that point, you need to find a way to get more outputs that have more granular control. And that's where matrix come in, um, matrices come into play. Right. Do you, do you spell that with an X or a C-E-S, matrices? I, I, I believe both are correct. Really? <laughs> I hate when both are correct. I know, I know. Hold on. I'm, it's I'm, it's I'm like when someone says right bi-weekly. Now. It's like when someone says bi-weekly. And, 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 and bi-weekly both means twice in a week and every other week yeah, at the same that's, time. That's I think egregious. it's the worst. That, that uh, should not be allowed in the Eng that's English That's messed language. up. Yeah, that, that's, that just sets you up for confusion. <laughs> Imagine if a bank uses that language. That's not good. Well, no, especially because they say it in pay When you're getting like signing up for payroll at a company, they're like, you're, you're going to get paid bi-weekly. So twice a week see in in those cases twice i just assume week, right? they mean every other week because there's no way they're paying you twice a week that'd be sick though <laughs> but if someone's like oh yeah we, we should we should have a phone call bi-weekly i'm like so does that mean we're going to do it twice a week or every other week <laughs> and for anybody who doesn't know this that is actually in the dictionary definition it is both of those wow which i think is crazy that is messed up well, anywho, but, uh, yeah. So back to matrices. Bo both are both are correct. <laughs> Matrix matrices or matrices are both correct as a plural. And that concludes the gram spelling and grammar portion of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess here we have to explain what a matrix is. Right. And a matrix is just another submix. That's all it really is. Yeah. But Mi mixer for your mixer. Basically, yeah, it's a mixer for your mixer. But what makes a matrix different? especially on an analog desk, is that a matrix can usually be fed by your left-right mix as well as all your groups and potentially your aux masters as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So in the context of something like, let's say, a matrix being used for a sub, you might take your left-right and send it into it. Or if you didn't want to do it that way, you might have your, your kick drum going to its own group. You could send the kick drum group to that matrix and maybe a bass group to that matrix. Mm-hmm. So that the subwoofer only at that point is getting signal from kick and bass. Right. 
Now, I don't believe that's that, that common, but what another thing that is common is doing subs on an aux send. Yep. And you can use, let's say, your last aux, aux 16, aux 192, whichever desk you're on, and that can be your sub send. So let's say on your kick drum and on your bass guitar, again, we'll use these as the, as the example, you could turn up that aux send, and on your matrix, you can turn up that aux as an input to the matrix, and then that matrix can feed your sub. Yeah. Matrixes give you tons and tons of options. So I use matrices as well for my outputs, and my left right gets fed by my left right, my sub gets fed by my left right, trimmed down a couple dB so that its actual output level is the same because it is a mono sum, and then my front fills get fed by my left right, and I add in a little bit extra of my vocal group mm-hmm. so that in the front row they get some more of that vocal than they would have if they were you know in the middle of the crowd. How do you guys use your matrices? Um, I, I do something similar. I mean, I feed my left-right matrix with, with my left... Well, I feed, yeah, the, the mains with my left-right. And then I also feed the mains to the sub and the fill. Sometimes I'll actually, depending on what kind of console I'm on, if it's like a more limited digital console, like let's say the M32, I'll actually have my vocal group going straight to the main matrix, the main left-right matrix. And I'll actually like bypass the main left-right of the console. Mm. And the reason I do that is just because I'm limited, like especially if I'm doing front of house and monitors from the same desk, I'm limited in my number of groups that I can have. So I kind of use my main left-right as like my instrument, like band group. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, and then I bypass that with the vocals, so that uh. they're going straight out to the speakers, and I can kind of ride the levels or compress the band itself, and have the vocals not be affected by without compressing the vocal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great, Joe. Yeah. Have you ever done that? Uh, no, I haven't, but I should. I should. Yeah, I haven't utilized. You know, I, I, I I've always just been a standard, just you know, left right front fill if anything i'll i'll do subs you know especially in like a smaller club or something like that i might do subs on an aux gotcha but uh no i i should i should i'm an imbecile for not so thank you brendan for no (laughs) (laughs) i don't know about that i don't know about that no (laughs) so i've i've actually been doing that for years actually since i started doing pop gigs um i i started doing that basically if i've got my whole band and my vocal going to my left right bus I typically put a bus compressor on that bus just to give it a little bit of vibe or, or kind of trim it back a tiny bit, you know, if they start going nuts. And if the band starts going nuts, I don't want that to pull back my vocal. Right. So I don't want the bus compressor there to be making my vocal quieter because my band is going ham. Instead, I then route, it exactly as Brendan just said, I will route my vocal to a vocal group, my vocal group straight to my PA matrix. My whole band is going to eventually left-right, and left-right goes to that PA matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in the PA matrix, I've got vocal plus band. And in my sub matrix, I've got band only because I don't need vocal there. In my front fill matrix, I've got band plus vocal, but my vocal's turned up a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. One of the other perks about this, though, is that every single show I do now, I record my left-right, which is instrumental. I record my vocal group, which is vocal only. And then I also record a matrix that sums them together so that if... My artist, and this was super convenient just a week ago, if my artist needs instrumental versions of all these shows because maybe they need to perform out of their own house because everybody's on quarantine, I can just send it to them without having to build it all again from scratch because I have a recording of instrumental. I have a recording of vocal only. Hmm. And where this gets super useful for me is that 
when I do virtual sound check and we're doing an outdoor show, I know that there's like 20,000 kids just outside of the gate. And I don't want them to hear the recording of the show because I don't want them to think that we're faking it. And I know that sounds stupid, but if they hear me like playing snippets of vocal and stuff like that, they're going to go, oh my God, the vocal's on track. Right. And I don't want them to have the possibility of thinking that. So when I do my virtual sound check, sometimes I just play the left-right mix that I've already recorded. Mm-hmm. And it's without vocal. So I can play yesterday's mix without, without vocal. You know, little things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Having cool. matrixes, they, they become pretty valuable. Yeah, yeah. That that's one one thing to totally remember from that, especially depending on what kind of console you're using, is if you are recording to set up that extra record matrix, right? If you are doing routing, that's going to like take things out of your main left right, and maybe you're rely you need to do a recording of the of your mix. Just make sure you set up your matrices so that you get that final mix to a two track. Yeah, that's a really good call. You know, in some venues, you might have another delay somewhere, uh, a bar feed or a lobby feed or something like that. that you, right. So yeah, have, have, have a couple on deck ready to go, you know? And, and you know, in the context of things like bar feeds and all that, where, where it gets super useful to use matrices here is that the speaker for the bar feed might be some tiny little thing with like a, a I don't know, a six inch driver in it. Your main PA might have, you know, double 15s in it. They have totally different tonality, right? Yeah. So yeah, you could just take your left, right and patch it to all of these, but then you don't have level control of each of them, each of them individually. Or EQ. And you definitely don't have the ability to EQ them separately. Exactly. So if you've yeah. got a tiny six inch driver, that's going to respond really differently than, you know, a double 15 main PA. And you might need to EQ them differently. So that's where the value comes in using matrices as the submixes that go out to these individual things. Mm-hmm. Learn them. So I, I, I guess that jumps into, you know, where do, where do EQs for your system live, right? Yeah. Th- I yeah. guess that, that, is, that is exactly a perfect jumping point. Um, yeah. And typically, your speaker, syst- uh, speaker processor will have EQ for the main PA, that speaker processor may also cover some of the outfills and, and, and front fills and things like that. So in that unit itself, you can add this processing. If you don't have a speaker processor between your console and every speaker that exists, you might have to do some of that EQ or time alignment or things like that in the desk itself. Mm-hmm. And that's totally okay. So in the, in the case of what Joe was just saying, where you've got a bar fill that's, that's stuck over the bar... I would say probably most of that, I don't know, 80% of the time I've seen a bar fill, it's not going through the same system process that's going through the main PA. Is it about the same for you guys? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. definitely. (laughs) So in that context, I kind of have to manage the bar fill, EQ, and level on my own because they just say, oh yeah, here's here's an XLR. This is the bar feed. And it's just some dirty XLR that's been in that place for 30 years (laughs) with some, some crappy tape labeling that doesn't say anything anymore, you know? Yeah. I feel like that happens all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so in in that context, yeah, you're going to have to do your EQ for that feed on your desk itself as opposed to in the system processor or in like a lake. So in a lake? What are we doing mixing in a lake? I'm just I'm sorry. Stupid. Stupid joke. <laughs> Cut that out. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to make a competitive product called the canoe. <laughs> <laughs> we are making waves, right? Oh, oh wow. man. Oh man, we got a water. We got a water analogy now. We've all been stuck in our houses too long. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. All right. So, Brendan, what else gets between my my signal and getting out of the desk? All right. So, in our desks, we typically have what are called VCAs and groups, ah. and uh, VCA stands for vol- voltage controlled amplifiers. And so, these are ways that we control the different channels 
um, that we have at our disposal. So uh, with a VCA, those are actually just controlling levels. So what you would typically do is assign a number of channels to a VCA, and usually that's represented by a fader, usually in the center of a console, especially if it's analog, or if it's a digital console, then it could possibly be anywhere you assign it to be. Mm-hmm. And when you move that VCA fader, once channels are assigned to it, that will control the relative levels of all those channels together. So like, let's say you assign all your drums to one VCA. When you move that VCA fader down 5 dB, all those channel faders are also going to move down 5 dB. Maybe not physically, but that's what's happening inside with the voltage. That's why it's called the voltage control. Exactly. Exactly. If if you're in a digital console, uh, most of the time they're called... DCAs, digitally controlled amplifiers, you might actually see the faders move. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some of the, some of them do that. Yeah. 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 So when you move your VCA up and down, all your faders connected to it might go up and down, and people will look over. I mean, I I remember being so excited the first time I used an SSL, um, not a live desk. I mean, you know, uh, I think it was a four thousand. It was an E E desk, maybe I don't know. It was either four thousand or six thousand. But I remember, you know, flipping those little rotaries to to the number of the VCA. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I grabbed that VCA and moved it, I was like, "Oh my god, they're all moving!" <laughs> it was so exciting. I didn't realize VCAs did that. I didn't realize they moved the faders um, on SSL. What? What? Are there any live not desks that, where they? Not that many do. I don't know. No, not that I can think of. I mean, I know that a lot of the recording desks do yeah but let's talk about the perks here real quick right Uh if you've got a vca and you pull it down to minus 20 maybe because that's just where it needs to be if your faders have physically moved down to minus 20 it's really hard to manage the relationship between the levels between them yeah right because Mm -hmm. at the lower physical level of your fader a half inch move might be 20 30 db whereas once you're up near the spot at unity a half inch might be only 5 dB. So this, the phaser sensitivity there is very different. So it's, in my opinion, it's actually better to not move those other faders. Right. You, once, once they're all in the VCA and you, you move that level down or up however much you want, kind of for the general level of everything, you still have all that fine control if, if your channel faders are around zero or all at zero. You, know? right. yeah. you can still do micro adjustments easily. Um, cool. Well, that brings us to the other aspect of this section, which are groups. So groups are ways of routing your channels. So different than a VCA, they're actually a similar to like a bus, like an aux bus, but you assign channels to a group and then you actually have the ability to process all those channels together as a group. And that can be either mono or stereo. So Taking drums, again, for an exa- for example, if you assign all your drums to a stereo group, you now have a pair of faders and, and then slots for either plug-in processing on a digital console or EQ and aux sends from that group as well. So you have a whole other layer and ability to affect all the channels together as either a mono or stereo group. I was, I was going to say the difference being, you know, at that point when you're routing through a group, the signal is physically going through another gain stage. Whereas with a VCA, you know, it's controlling the gain or voltage, if you will, of what's already there. Does that make sense? Like in the faders themselves. Yeah. So, so what, what's the, in, in terms of using them, when would you use one versus the other? I would say it, for me, it's, it's based off of your need for inserts. If I need to put inserts on a group, 
then I'm an, you know on a group of channels uh, you know together then then I'll use a group if it's just a, a level control or fine tunement fine tuning thing then you know a VCA might be better or even as a mute you know um, a lot of people will put their effects on a VCA and that way you can just mute you know the effects uh, in between songs I, I use a group personally because I like to EQ right. you know my effects group as well um, but yeah mm-hmm Brennan, is it kind of the same for you? Um, yeah, it, it's the same. So I'll use I'll use groups to combine channels and process them more. So like all my guitars might be on like a stereo group, and I'll do some EQ to them all together. Um, but then my VCAs I'm using to, I, especially in the analog world, but also in digital, like I'm using them to run my show. Basically, like I'm riding. Preferably riding VCAs if I have the opportunity, the, the opportunity to option. Yeah. I'm, yeah, if I have the option to, I'm assigning like all my drums to a VCA, all my, my bass to a VCA, one so that like all my instrument groupings are together, and I can easily just be listening and riding faders to you know make the song have impact and like and bring levels up and down like really subtly if or drastically if I need to like really fast and kind of do it by feel rather than like going in between all the different channels or the different groups which might be it would be more complicated to So so ultimately to for both you guys like the difference between the your choice to use a group versus a VCA is kind of whether or not you need to do additional processing on that bunch of channels right Yeah Yeah definitely so, so if you need to do extra processing, you run into a group and you can do the processing on the group because the audio is actually physically going through it. Well, digitally, whatever, or analogly. <laughs> um, but whereas a VCA, it's really just remote control of a fader, right? Exactly. Right. Is there anything you do differently? Right. Well, I was about to say, where it gets interesting is that, first of all, on some of the more advanced digital consoles, you can assign groups to a VCA. So you can use a VCA to control the level of multiple groups at the same time. And I, I agree with you guys entirely. The difference really between a VCA and, and a group is whether or not you need to add additional processing. And where it gets really interesting is being able to use both at the same time. Well, we keep jumping back to drums as an example, and I think it's because, it's a, first of all, it's a thing that everyone seems to want to know stuff about. Second of all, it's one of the more complicated instruments, you know? A lot of inputs. So, yeah. Where it gets real interesting is being able to use both at the same time. And, and here's a good example. Let's say I've got all my drums routed into a group. And I have a compressor on that group because it makes my drums nice and punchy. Right? If I have a VCA that is now that has all of my drum inputs assigned to it, that VCA now controls my drum inputs. Right? Right. And let's, let's just imagine that I want my drums to sound really intense for one song what i can do there is take my vca and drive it up to plus six now all my drum inputs are hitting my group at you know a higher level and that group compressor is now compressing it harder right so what i can do is i can bump my vca up to plus six and pull my group down i don't know four five six db so that the output level of the whole drum kit is the same but the intensity level is much higher right and if I've got, let's say, a really mellow song, I can pull my VCA down to minus six and push my group up to plus six so that now it's not driving into a compressor, but the output volume of the whole drum kit has stayed about the same. Yeah. 
And being able to use both of them together gets really interesting because you have, you know, a single fader to control um, the level, if you will, and another fader to control what's feeding into that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, I guess, to be aware of is if you use lots of groups, groups do not affect your post-fader sends. So right. if you have, let's say, vocals going to a group, and you got vocal that vocal also sending you a bunch of effects, if you take that group all the way off and pull it all the way to minus infinity, your vocal effects are still receiving signal, and your vocal effects returns are still going out to your PA or your mix. So unless those vocal effects returns are also routed to that group, the level relationship is going to change as you move up and down that group. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 It's, I feel like those are the things to be aware yeah, of. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to get, you know, uh, caught up in the routing, uh, starting out doing this stuff, but you know, just, just manage it, you know, uh, focus uh, and pay attention to where your signal's going and, you know, just make sure you know what's going on. Everything with purpose. Yeah. To be honest, keep it simple until you're super comfortable. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I'd say, Joe, you mentioned it a little bit, but but using the VCA to control your effects returns, I mean, I, I find that super useful, and I yeah. find that in almost every club I work in, that's how they have it set up. Yeah. Um, yeah. That way, you yeah, can, that's, that's pretty you know, common. In between songs, you can quickly ride your reverb down. And are, are you saying you don't like it when the artist is talking between songs and it sounds like they're in a cave? <laughs> I mean... Call me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Call me crazy. Oh, you're crazy. You're crazy, Brendan. But, but also, you know, I, I'll tell you, you know, still, no matter how many times I work there, I'll go to the independent and, you know, the effects returns will be on that VCA. The VCA will be down. The channel faders will be up on the returns. And I'll be like, why am I not hearing any reverb? What's going on? <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> they're all in a VCA and it's down. Now, and I am brain. You know, since since we're talking about since we're talking specifically about VCAs and effects, I will say I do it a little differently, and I use my VCA for my effects send masters, and not the returns. So my aux sends are actually. I would love to the do- aux masters are on my VCA. You just can't do that on most analog desks. Can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> actually, do I don't it. think you can do that on any analog desk. <laughs> yeah. That that way you let your tails go. That that makes that makes a lot of sense actually. Right. Right. I think maybe maybe there specifically the effects returns because everything's analog. Some of those units are a bit noisy, so it's highly beneficial to be able to. Right. So you want to pull down the return. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but no, that's that's imp- that's something to think about too. You know, effects. Uh, sends versus returns and writing those yeah that's maybe that's maybe a whole that's maybe a whole episode right there uh, that's probably a whole episode on its own mm-hmm. but you know what i just remembered one other thing that i have a vca on every single time mm-hmm. is i have a band vca mm. and it is everything except my vocals yeah and where that becomes useful is if the band just starts going too hard and I can't get my vocal to cut over it, there's no point in pushing the vocal any farther if it's not going to go anywhere. So just take that one band VCA and pull the whole thing down. Yeah, It's it's pretty easy. I mean, well, considering I use you know left-right as basically an instrument group, I, I guess I don't need to do that. But it's just a thing I've been doing for so long, and I think it's so valuable. And for those of you guys working in smaller spaces where you don't have basically unlimited PA it is often more valuable to pull back the whole band than it is to try and push that vocal. Yeah. So give, give that one a shot, you know, give it a, give it a try, put your whole band into a VCA. Good point. Good point. Yeah. And actually, you know what, you know what, before, before we move off VCA, I have one more thing to say. Okay. 
you can assign a single channel to many different VCAs. Mm, Don't forget that. You can assign a drum channel to a drum group, or sorry, a drum VCA. You can also assign it to, I don't know, a Tom's VCA. You can also assign it to a all-band VCA if you wanted to. So just to make that clear, that is doable. I would say be careful and, you know, be mindful and know what's going on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Otherwise, you'll end up in a spot where you're like, why can't I hear my f- effects? Why can't I hear them, dude? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess, I guess uh, you know, to close this up, how do you turn off a system? <laughs> yeah, how do, you turn on a, how do you turn on and off a system? This is just kind of a little tidbit we're chucking in here at the end. It's, it's not only important for front of house, it's important for monitors as well. A- any scenario where you have a, you know, an amplified sound system, um, and that's just, you know, power up and down sequence, um, you know, the order of things. And basically the philosophy is, you know, as far as the speakers and or amplifiers go, they need to go on last and they need to go off first. Well, you might ask why. Well, when you power, let's start with powering on. When you power on equipment, either for that matter, powering on or off equipment, any equipment that might be in your signal chain uh, may cause uh, an unpleasant artifact like a big pop or, you know, or it might start buzzing or any kind of weird thing that could potentially damage your speakers. So the philosophy behind it is, you know, when you're powering it on, turn everything on that's, you know, in the signal path, turn everything else on first. Yeah, exactly. Turn everything upstream on first and then the speaker's on last. That way everything's already powered on and you're not going to hear any pops or bursts or buzzing or anything like that, um, you know, full, full scale through the PA. And then you just do it in reverse uh, when powering down. You know, powering off any equipment could potentially cause pops power off your amplifiers or your powered speakers first and then power down the console and eqs and you know whatever whatever else is in the chain right 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 and uh it's gonna save your gear and it's gonna save your ears yeah yeah definitely i feel like that's a thing that i learned later than i should have you're just you're just flipping your desk off you know just you you know my, my first live sound gig that i was on that was you know consistent was this tiny mackie cr series Mm -hmm. and the amps were directly under it in the rack and that was it and i don't think anyone had ever told me that you have to turn the amps on after the desk at that point Mm -hmm. and i remember i would just turn them on and actually know what i think they were all on one power conditioner Mm -hmm. and you just Mm -hmm. flip that one thing on and everything turned on at the same time yeah but the console did always for some reason just turn on a little bit later so as soon as you turned it on you just hear through the pa yeah and i just at the time, I didn't know that that was not okay. <laughs> yeah, that is that, no bueno. No one wants to hear that. I'm pretty sure yeah, I blew up some high-frequency drivers back then. The first bar gig I had had a little powered speaker all the way in the back of the bar that was yeah. like on a separate output. Uh, and it's all the way up in the corner above like a pinball machine and stuff. So I like always forget that it even existed and because I, would, I wouldn't use it when the band's playing. They only used it for like bar music. And so every time I go in, I'd be the first person there, and I'd turn on the system and just go, ah. like it's probably pointed right at the barman too. Yeah. <laughs> well, they weren't there. Luckily, I would always show up earlier Oof. than them. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah a pain in the ass to climb up there and turn it on and off. Don't don't piss off your bar your bartenders. You know, turn turn the speakers off. You know, first and on last. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that was a pretty good overview for signal flow for front of house yeah feel like we missed anything no it sounds good 
No, I think you guys are ready to do a show and do it perfectly without screwing anything mm-hmm. up ever. Let, let's do it. I, I'm play maybe sometime in 2022 or something like that. Yeah, if we're lucky, <laughs> we can get get out there and try some of these techniques. Then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like 10 years from now, give give it a shot. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for listening. Uh, Like, subscribe, all those lovely things, and we'll catch you next time. Take it easy. Peace.